By the way, I'm not Lord Nicholas Stern. Uh, my name is Athar Hussain, and I'm director of the Asia Research Center. Nick Stern can't be here, and he sends his apologies because he had to be out, out of London today to present his report on, on climate change. So let me start and to welcome you all. And it's first, let me say, it's a very special occasion. This event marks the start of exchange program between the London School of Economics and Korean universities. So it's fitting that we start the program or launch the program with a lecture from what important intellectual export from Korea to the UK, <laughs> Pro Professor Jang Hajun, who's been at Cambridge for a number of years. And for many of you, he doesn't need any introduction. He has been made a name for himself by writing numerous books, but also challenging orthodoxy. So really, that has been his hallmark is actually to ask questions about the received wisdom. He's written several books. The most famous, which won him the Gunnar Medal Prize, was kicking away the ladder. Well, that's what he's not going to do because he injured his knee <laughs> while sort of riding a bicycle. So it would be less sort of physical. And he's also written a book on the bad Samaritans which actually makes a particularly apt reading for in the time of the financial crisis, in the sense that the bad Samaritans are now suffering or undergoing a financial crisis. And so that the, the topic of the talk of economic agendas in a global context reflections on the role of Korea. I mean, just to say that Korea holds a very special position that is, in the 50s, it was one of the poorest countries in the world. Now it is ranks among the upper middle income economies. So in, in some sense, is an example for other countries, a way of development. It also raises as many questions as it provides answers. So I think with this, I turn to Professor Jiang to tell us his ideas about the process of development and the development agendas. Thank you, Professor Hussain, for that introduction that I do not deserve. And, and thank you all for coming uh, at this uh, late hour of the day. Now, please excuse me for sitting down to give this lecture as uh, Professor Hussein mentioned, and as uh, some of you saw, I fractured my knee a couple of months ago uh, in an accident, uh, so I uh, cannot uh, walk or stand for long. So uh, I actually that, uh, like uh, standing and walking around when I uh, give a lecture, so that, uh, this is uh, quite frustrating for me as well. Uh, that, so please uh, accept my apologies. Uh, well, it is uh, really my great honor to deliver this uh, inaugural lecture for the Korea Foundation LSE 
academic exchange program. Now, I, I, I came to Britain as a graduate student back in 1986 when there were probably no more than a few dozen Korean graduate students in oral Britain. And one thing that really infuriated me at the time was whenever I told people that I was from Korea, they would uh, ask, uh, so which language do you speak in Korea, Chinese or Japanese? <laughs> and then I said, no, 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 we speak Korean. Then they say, oh, I get it. Okay, so it's uh, uh, Korean, Japanese or Chinese? Right. <laughs> These days uh, that uh, you see, yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, fancy Korean things that, uh, in this country, and you know, I almost have a lump in my throat uh, to see the uh, to see that the academic relationship between the two countries have developed so much that now we are going to have a regular exchange program that will bring top-notch. Korean academics to one of Britain's leading academic institutions, LSE, and vice versa. Now, I could go all emotional on this, but that will only reinforce Korean cultural stereotype, passionate, emotional people who like to drink, sing, and shed a few tears. Huh? <laughs> so I'm going to start this lecture with a joke that I read in a children's magazine when I was probably nine or ten, I don't exactly remember. That is uh, back in 1972 or three. Now, that was a time when Korea was growing at 10, 11, 12 percent. I mean, in the same way China's growing these days. I mean, it's the kind of economic growth that you can almost see with your bare eyes. Huh? And this was a time when factories were springing up uh, like mushrooms after autumn rain and literally hundreds of thousands of youngsters were leaving the countryside to work in yeah, those factories. Of course, uh, the conditions were horrific. In many of them, you would uh, have to work 12, 15 hours, and some of these factories refused to serve soup in the canteen because uh, that might make the workers take an extra toilet break uh, that might wipe out their uh, ultra-thin profit margin. So, it was at that, that, that quite uh, difficult times. Now the story is that these two country boys, like so many <coughs> other people that, of their generation, get third class ticket uh, for a slow night train going to Seoul, the capital city, and after, what, 10 hours or whatever, they stagger out uh, into the plaza in front of the <coughs> central station in Seoul, which is uh, <coughs> at, uh, well, I mean, imaginatively known as uh, Seoul Station. Um, and uh, they are shocked to see this uh, amazing sight uh, when they come out and they see this uh, 10 story building. So they, they are, I mean, they've never seen anything like this, and uh, they are goggling at this. And when they were doing that, a crew comes along and says to them, what are you looking at? And this country boy says, uh, we are looking at that tall building. 
Then the crook says, how many stories have you seen? And the country boy said, what do you mean? What's, what's that got to do with you? And the crook says, you know, some people have spent a huge amount of money building those things. Do you think uh, you can see them for free? Uh, so the country boy said, well, uh, we didn't know that uh, we have to pay for this. But since you say so, so the crook says, so uh, tell me, how many stories have you seen? Uh, so one goes, uh, I've seen five. The other says, the other says uh, I've seen four. And the crook goes, okay, it's uh, 101 per story, one being the Korean currency. So you pay me, uh, you pay me 501 and you pay me 400. Huh? So they fork out their precious money. The crook takes the money and then disappears. And suddenly these uh, country boys uh, burst into laughter and they uh, say, well, who said that these uh, capital city guys are clever? We've seen all the 10 stories, and he thought that we saw only four and five. Huh? <laughs> now, as uh, most uh, children's jokes are, this one is not that funny when you <laughs> hear it as a grown-up, but it really tells you a lot about you know, what South Korea was. Only one generation ago, there were millions and millions of people in Korea who had not seen nothing higher than say the two-story building for the local agriculture co-ops or the three-story cinema in the local market town. Yeah? I mean, 10-story buildings was yeah, something that you didn't even dream of. Well, today, Koreans who come and live in Britain complain that this place is so outdated. Huh? You know, I mean, unless you go to the city of London, which uh, that, uh, that you wouldn't go unless you work in the financial sector, you see virtually no skyscraper. And then very sadly, London's modern architecture in the central part is represented by that horrible building, Centerpoint. So people say, oh, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> when they uh, try to get on the, onto the underground, they see narrow tunnels, yeah, rickety trains without air conditioning. Yeah and then the, the underground authority telling you to carry a bottle of water in summer because you might faint. Yeah? <laughs> and what really the pisses them off is uh, the two, four, even six week wait that, uh, until you get your poultry 20 megabyte uh, broadband connection when in Korea <laughs> the internet company apologizes if they cannot give you 100 megabyte the same day. Yeah? When I was uh, writing this uh, book, uh, well, this is uh, the commercial break, uh, Bad Samaritans, <laughs> which is uh, now in paperback edition and totally affordable. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, this must be the only book, at least so far, which was recommended both by Noam Chomsky and Martin Ulf of the Financial Times. Huh? <laughs> When I was uh, writing this book, I did uh, some back-of-the-envelope calculation using Angus Madison's uh, historical data and uh, uh, figured out that uh, during my lifetime, I was born in 1963, I was writing this book in the, the autumn of 2006, so when I was like, uh, 42, 3, during my lifetime, per capita income in Korea in purchasing power terms, 
increased by something like 14 times. Huh? Now, it took Britain two centuries between the late 19th century, uh, late 18th century and today to achieve the same amount of growth. Hmm? This means that the material progress I've seen in my 43, 45 years is as though I was born in, I mean, the, the days when George III was on the throne. Yeah? So to put it provocatively, I just turned uh, 45 in, yeah, uh, the, the 45 last week, but you know, I'm 45 as a Korean, but I could be 245 as an English person. Yeah? And it wasn't just uh, income growth. I mean, take the case of things like well, life expectancy and infant mortality. Yeah? A child born in Korea today can expect to live until it is 77. Yeah? A child born when I was born in the early 60s could expect only to live for 53 years. Yeah? So 24 additional years on average. In the early 60s, infant mortality, which is the number of uh, the death before the age of one, infant mortality out of 1,000 in Korea was uh, 78. Yeah? So almost uh, the, the one in 10 babies died uh, within the first year. Today is five. Now, in terms of these uh, life chance indicators, Korea's progress is as if Haiti has turned into Switzerland. Huh? Now, today, Haiti has uh, the, the life ex expectancy of uh, 52, which is you know, similar to what Korea had in 1960, which was 53. Haiti's uh, infant mortality is uh, 76 per thousand live birth. Korea, Korea's was uh, 78 per 1,000 live births. Yeah? Today, life expectancy in Korea is 77. The Swiss one is 81. Korean infant mortality is 5 out of 1,000. The Swiss one is 4 out of 1,000. Yeah? The country's environment has also gone through a lot of changes. People of my generation and older must remember how most of our mountains were bare with red earth and probably a few clumps of uh, grass here and there because all trees had been cut down for fuel. Yeah? I mean, the predominant color in my memory of the landscape was red. Yeah? Uh, there were no trees. Yeah? The bold mountains, or Mindungsan as uh, they are known in Korean, used to lead to as you know, flooding, landslides, topsoil erosion, all kinds of problems. Huh? Now, thanks to the combination of a determined forestation policy, we even had this at the National Tree Planting Day, which was uh, made into a national holiday. So everyone would be you know, kind of uh, going to the mountains and uh, plant a tree. Thanks to the combination of this uh, determined forestation policy, rising income that has encouraged us to care more about our environment, 
and rising export capability that let us import more coal and oil for heating. Today, most of Korea's mountains are green with trees. Now, I cannot say that the country today has a good environmental credential overall. I mean, we, we very heavily depend on, on the fossil fuels, and uh, although we are trying to kind of yeah, uh, the, the go green, the, there's a long way to go. But at least in terms of uh, controlling local environmental degradation, the country's record has been quite impressive. Huh? Now, I could go on and on with that, uh, these things, but the point is that what has happened in Korea since the 1960s really deserves the description miracle, if anything deserves that description. Now, there has been a considerable debate on how this miracle has been achieved. And that, that, that there was a debate between people who believed that this was possible only because Korea adopted the free trade, free market policy. There are other people like myself or Robert Wade in this school who have argued otherwise. I think uh, now most uh, sensible people agree that Korea succeeded through a set of policies that go against today's free market, free trade orthodoxy, tariff protection, import quotas, subsidies, heavy regulation of domestic activities, closed capital market, regulation of foreign direct investment, program, uh, the, sorry, uh, the use of uh, the quite widespread use of uh, state-owned enterprises, violation of uh, patents and other intellectual property rights of uh, more advanced countries, relatively loose macroeconomic policy, and so on. I mean, almost everything it did went against yeah, the free trade, free market orthodoxy. Of course, uh, some say that the country would have done even better without those uh, policies, but I think this argument doesn't really hold water because there's not a single country which did better than Korea with free market, free trade policy. I mean, if there was one country which, say, grew at 10% with free trade, free market policy and Korea grew at only 8 say, then you could conceivably argue that if Korea didn't use these policies, it could have gone, uh, grown at 10%, but unfortunately there's uh, no country like that. And I think most people these days uh, that, uh, agree that, that this is how countries like Korea, Japan, and Taiwan have grown. But there's more. Actually, it wasn't just Korea, Japan, Taiwan that grew on the basis of these, uh, for the lack of a better word, uh, heterodox policies. I show in my book, Kicking Out the Ladder, and also in Bad Samaritans in slightly different ways and in slightly different areas, all of today's rich countries used uh, these policies to one degree or another when they were developing countries themselves. Yeah? Have, uh, take the example of uh, trade policy. All of today's rich countries, well, they were exceptions, but I'll get to them later. But basically, that uh, most of today's uh, rich countries used uh, tariff, 
protection for substantial periods. And the interesting thing is that Britain and the US, the supposed homes of free trade, were actually the most protectionist economies in the world in their respective times. Uh, the, during the late 18th and early 19th century, in the British case, and between mid-19th century and mid-20th century, in the case of the United States, you know, I mean, if you read only things like The Economist magazine, you would think that uh, the protectionism was uh, invented in the France, but no, actually it was invented in Britain. Huh? The U.S. Uh, maintained basically 40-50% average tariff throughout uh, its uh, development period uh, between, say, 1830s and the Second World War, but we still think that, that, that this country developed on the basis of uh, free trade. Very interestingly, the first person who theorized the best protectionist argument, known as infant industry argument, is yeah, actually someone who you have seen many times. Uh, it's uh, this guy on the $10 bill, Alexander Hamilton the first Treasury Secretary of the United States. Huh? And despite all this, uh, we think that the British and the American economists became the top dogs in their respective times because they adopted free trade. No, they adopted free trade after they became top, dog, top dogs. Yeah? As I said, uh, there were exceptions. For example, the Netherlands and Switzerland until the First World War did not uh, the use uh, tariffs. I mean, the, especially the Netherlands that uh, the can be described as the only country which really stuck to free trade throughout its history since the 18th century, although previously it had uh, a lot of uh, the uh, kind of um, protection and mercantilist uh, policies. But even these countries went against today's orthodoxy in refusing to introduce patterns until the early 20th century. And, and uh, the, this wasn't just uh, the, the, a random thing. I mean, the, especially in the Dutch case, uh, they first introduced their patent law in 1819 and then uh, they abolished it in 1869 on the ground that we are a free trading nation and we cannot, as a free trading nation, cannot possibly endorse a socially created monopoly like patent. And when you think about it, uh, that's what it is. So at least that uh, free trade economists that uh, at the time were more consistent than the free trade economists today. Today, people think nothing of advocating free trade, but also advocating protection when it comes to ideas. You could talk about these things in many other areas. For example, take the case of state-owned enterprises. Developing countries are today told that they should privatize everything, I don't know, their state-owned enterprises, pension funds, their grandmother. But when you look at the history of uh, the rich countries, not all of them, as in the case of trade policy, but 
Many of them use the public enterprises extensively. Huh? You know, for example, the old French firms that you have uh, heard of are either still state-owned or the, were state-owned until recently. Huh? I mean, the, the car maker Renault, yeah? I mean, the, the electronics uh, company Thomson, yeah? the glass company Sengobank, I mean, just about all of them. You must be all used to hearing all these stories about how Singapore practices free trade and welcomes foreign investment, which is true, but did you know that uh, public enterprises in Singapore, including the Singapore Airlines, uh, the so-called world's most awarded airline, according to their adver advertisement, produce a staggering 22% of GDP, did you know that uh, virtually all land is uh, owned by the government in Singapore? And did you know that 85% uh, of housing is provided by the government? You know, th th this is uh, the one interesting point. I mean, uh, as uh, the I often say, life is uh, stranger than fiction. You know, if uh, someone tried to invent an economy just by reading economics textbook, I don't think uh, anyone would have come up with something like Singapore. But uh, there you have it. I mean, uh, you have this economy which, uh, yes, uh, practices free trade, yes, uh, welcomes foreign investment, but at the same time, it's uh, one of the most uh, state-owned and controlled economies in the world. Many countries uh, regulated foreign direct investment heavily. In the 19th century, the United States did not allow non-resident foreign shareholders to vote in the shareholders' meetings when it comes to nationally chartered banks. Yeah? I mean, uh, today, American shareholders typically complain about uh, the Swedish companies having differential voting rights for different classes of shares. Yeah? So that, uh, it, I mean, actually, this exists in some American companies, but it's uh, more prevalent in countries like Sweden. And in those countries, that uh, some shares uh, have uh, one vote, some shares have uh, 10, 100,000. And they complain, but at least, you know, the Swiss uh, let you vote. Huh? In the, the case of uh, 19th century American banks, uh, the, you were allowed to own shares, but uh, you are not allowed to vote. Huh? Japan virtually banned foreign direct investment until the 1980s. Between the 1930s and 1980s, Finland, today considered uh, to be a model student of uh, global integration, Finland classified all firms with more than 20% foreign ownership as, and I haven't made this up, dangerous enterprises. Eh? And of course, that, that, uh, foreigners got this uh, subtle hint and uh, kept away from Finland. Eh? Same story with uh, intellectual property rights. I have already talked about the Netherlands and Switzerland, but many countries, uh, even when they had uh, patent law, they explicitly allowed patenting of foreigners' inventions. So, for example, there was this British guy uh, called Peter Durand who took out a patent on canning technology. In the application, he explicitly wrote that I got this uh, technology from a foreigner, which happens to be a Frenchman called Nicolas Appert, but that was totally legal. Yeah? In the 19th century, the Germans were mass-producing fake made-in-England products, so much so that uh, there was a British uh, parliamentary inquiry about this matter. You know, I mean, 
basically everyone does it uh, when they need to. Huh? So in the 1950s, actually this is one street that I could never verify, so I never put it in the, my writing, but uh, it's uh, so good I have to uh, tell you this. In the 1950s, uh, the Japanese were desperate to increase its export, huh? but that was a time when Made in Japan was uh, a synonym for shoddy product, so they had a terrible image problem. And then one guy uh, hit upon this uh, brilliant idea that uh, there's a small town near Tokyo called USA, spelled USA. <laughs> so they started uh, producing a massive amount of uh, that, uh, made in USA products. <laughs> and when the Americans protested, they said, oh, no, 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 you have to improve your English. Huh? Your country's name is uh, capital U dot capital S dot capital A dot. This is capital U, no dot, small s, no dot, small a. Yeah? <laughs> I don't know, I mean, I have but, uh, gone so, f I mean, as far as that, uh, getting confirmation from quite a few older generation Japanese that they were, I mean, that, uh, made in USA products, but uh, no one has uh, been able to tell me how prevalent this was. Huh? So, I mean, this uh, remains one of those uh, urban legends, but, you know, it tells you something. Huh? The U.S. Uh, refused to protect foreigners' copyrights until 1891, a hundred years after the introduction of his own copyright law. So Charles Dickens apparently sold more books in America than in England, but he never saw a penny of it. Huh? I can go on and on with these examples, and you can find a lot more examples in my books. But the point is that in recommending or even imposing through aid and loan conditionalities free market, free trade policies to developing countries, the rich countries are going directly against their own historical experiences. And this situation is especially worrying when orthodox policies have produced very poor results in terms of not just uh, income distribution, as uh, that, uh, many people know, but also in terms of uh, the economic growth, economic stability, you name it. I don't have time to go into this. In the last two and a half decades, especially in developing countries, and at the rate that it is going, I mean, uh, this uh, will produce very poor results in the rich countries as well. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not you know, against markets, international trade, or globalization. <clears throat> Global integration is essential for economic development. But all I'm against is blind faith in free markets, indiscriminate, indiscriminate uh, free trade and free finance, and forced global integration. As uh, examples, uh, I mean, many examples show there are huge benefits from global integration if it is done in the right way and at the right speed. But if countries that are not ready are forced to open up prematurely, the result will be and has been negative. Developing countries should be allowed to integrate into the global economy at their own pace while being given this space to develop their productive capabilities through nationalistic policies regarding trade, foreign investment, intellectual property rights, and so on. 
And in reforming the global economic system in this kind of way, Korea can play an important role. You know, together with Taiwan and Singapore, it is one of the few countries in human history that have moved from being one of the poorest in the world to one of the richer, although not yet richest, countries within a generation. So you can actually understand the concerns that span across a huge spectrum of countries ranging from, as they say, Switzerland to Swaziland. You know, for example, the, back in 1961, Korea's per capita income was $82. Huh? In the same year, Ghana's uh, per capita income was $179. Huh? So, I mean, this country knows uh, what uh, abject poverty is. Huh? And of the three countries that I've just mentioned, it's really the only country that can play a political role in the international system. Huh? I mean. Singapore is uh, the, a city-state, and Taiwan, yeah, for, I mean, basically because of China, cannot really play any role. So Korea actually has a very unique place. Huh? So in designing uh, what I see as a pro-developmental world trading system, it can persuade the rich countries that well-designed protectionism can help uh, countries uh, develop while also teaching, uh, sorry, the, telling the developing countries how a carefully designed uh, global integration can actually be beneficial. Hmm? For another example, it can play a unique role in fairly distributing the burdens of global environmental adjustment because the recentness of its uh, poverty means that it has experienced all possible environmental problems, huh? ranging from typically developing country problems of deforestation, air pollution, and water pollution, through development-driven environmental cleanup, and more recently, uh, the problem about uh, the, uh, bearing serious burden in cutting down greenhouse gases and so on. So it has uh, a lot of uh, that, uh, unique uh, I mean, uh, things it can do. Unfortunately, the country is, in my view, not living up to its uh, potential and, and goes along with the other rich countries in pushing free market, free trade policies on poor countries. So despite once having been one of the most protectionist countries in the world, when you go to the WTO, Korea now advocates steep cuts in industrial tariffs. Okay, I mean, not as much as uh, the, the other richer countries want. I mean, Americans basically in the WTO wants to abolish all industrial tariffs uh, by 2015. The Europeans say, well, that's a bit too harsh. Uh, why don't we go for 5%? Koreans then say maybe 10%, maybe 15%. Yeah? So uh, it's uh, a bit more understanding than the rich, uh, richer countries, but it's basically in the same yeah, uh, the groove. Despite once having been the world piracy capital, it gets upset when the Chinese and the Vietnamese are producing pirate CDs of Korean pop music and pirate DVDs of Korean movies. Huh? You know, and, uh, there was a time when uh, you could 
buy anything you wanted. Uh, I mean, the, the, actually, the, the one funny story I can tell you is that when I was uh, in the university, the, a friend of mine the, came to me and said, oh, I found this uh, great shoe store. So I said, that, that, what's so great about it? Oh, you go, go there, choose any shoes, and you ask for any kind of uh, brand that you want, they'll give it to you. Hmm? So I said, oh, great. Uh, so what uh, brand did you get? He said, oh, I got Gucci. Hmm? And he uh, took uh, his uh, shoes off and showed it, uh, showed it to me. And uh, there you go. I mean, there was a uh, the, the Gucci brand. Except that these people are so kind of uh, uh, the kind that uh, they translated uh, this into Korean and wrote in Korean as well, Gucci. Yeah? <laughs> now, you know, I have a very peculiar view on this uh, that, uh, pirating issue. You know, Frankly, most people who buy these uh, counterfeits know that they are buying counterfeits and they cannot afford the real thing. But that, 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 that my, my view is that uh, actually these people need to be paid by the company because these people are doing free advertising for you know, Gucci and Louis Vuitton and you know, Nike. You know? And that, uh, even better, when these people become rich, like they did in Japan or Korea and increasingly China, they then uh, buy the real thing. Yeah? So actually, that, 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 that they should uh, encourage that uh, counterfeiting as a way of <laughs> promoting brand awareness. And yeah? No, because that, that frankly, it's not as if yeah, the guy who buys uh, the, the, uh, kind of rip off uh, the Louis Vuitton bag or the kind of uh, fake Rolex watch in China or the, the Korea in the 1970s could buy the real thing. Yeah? So the, actually the company doesn't lose any revenue. Huh? Anyway, that's by the way. Well, so yes, I mean, we are doing these things. Well, actually we are not that bad. We do it to ourselves. Huh? Because in the last 15 years, we have, uh, in my view, prematurely privatized and deregulated our economy. And, and now it's uh, trying to sign a free trade agreement with the US and the EU. It's not as if uh, we are doing it only that, uh, to other people, but uh, to ourselves. So we are not that bad. Now, you know, the British and the Americans can at least say that, oh, you know, it was our great, 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 great-grandfather who did those uh, things, and I didn't know that. But we Koreans don't even have that excuse. Huh? You know, many Korean free marketeers are often the same people who not so long ago actually drafted and implemented interventionist, protectionist policies in their earlier jobs. Most of them probably learned their free market economics from pirate copied American economics textbooks while listening to pirate copied rock and roll music and watching pirate copied Hollywood movie videos in their spare time. Huh? So we don't even have that uh, feeble excuse that I didn't know. Yeah? You know, I mean, it's not an excuse that uh, in the end because, you know, that uh, you are only saying that you are ignorant of uh, your own history, but at least that uh, it uh, is uh, the, the an excuse. 
Whereas that, uh, we Koreans uh, do, do not even have that excuse because we know how we developed. You know? We know what we did. You know? And it's often the same people who you know, did these things that, 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 that 25, uh, 20 years ago who are advocating different things. Well, Korea has uh, achieved something remarkable. And I think uh, we Koreans uh, deserve to be proud of it. But uh, we also have the moral duty to draw the light, right uh, lessons for less uh, fortunate countries from our unique experience. And it is that, uh, for this reason that, that I argue that it is time that Korea becomes a catalyst in transforming the global economic system in a way that uh, helps uh, poor countries uh, develop. Thank you. Thank you for a very um, interesting presentation. I'm a PhD student in economic history, and I'm also looking into the industrialization period for Korea. Um, I'm quite interested in what you're saying about Korea playing a bigger role in designing a pro-developmental mm -hmm. um, trade system um, overall, and especially in favor of developing or least developed countries. And you mentioned also this, it's a moral duty to draw the right historical lessons from its own experience. Um, I think you have a, you raised very interesting and very uh, valid points, but ultimately when po policymakers or even firms are setting out um, agendas, long-term or even short-term agendas, they're making calculations. They're looking into their self-interest. And in order for Korea to play a more active role in um, them to do, the calculation have to be that in the long term or even in the medium term, the benefits are bigger for Korea to play such an active role to promote more pro-developmental design. And it has to meet their own self-interest, either for the firms, the Korean firms, or the Korean economy in general. Um, do you have any evidence or more persuasive arguments where you can say that the benefits are even from a self-interest perspective, the benefits are bigger for Korea mm -hmm. to do that, or um, it's a sort of a non-zero-sum game. We bet we are going to benefit. Everyone's going to benefit from such a Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let me collect a few, and then yeah. Hi. Hello. Um, my name's Helen, and I'm studying the bar. Um, just an interesting note, I used to work for Gap in the legal department, and um, on the note of counterfeits, I think companies do care for about it, but they don't do anything about it because mm -hmm. sometimes it's a lot more work and effort than need be, yeah. so the authorities usually just hand it as it were. Mm -hmm. But what I'm interested to know is, for instance, as you mentioned about the WTO, there's issues with, let's say, companies who 
painting, let's say, seeds. I think that's a good example, particularly with farmers. And how do you strike a balance between saying, um, it doesn't really matter if we have a couple of fake goods, but it is a huge issue when people counterfeit consumer goods like salt, sugar, eggs, and milk recently, like let's say in China. <laughs> yeah. So then that involves probably the World Health Organization, which could end up being a global issue in, in that respect. So how do you find that balance yeah. of protecting um, mm -hmm. consumers and also companies? Thank you. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Hugh, and I'm from the. I'm I'm doing a master's at uh, the International Relations and History Department. Um, my question is um, about the political system in Asia. How do you think? Uh, if you, uh, in all your examples, all the political systems were quite centralized in in their you know nature. And um, if you look at China today, they still have a one-party system. Um, do you think there ha is there any relation between this centralized political system and um, the unorthodox kind of measures of economic mm -hmm. development that you mentioned. Um, one more thing that I just want to mention is, um, as you said that Korea is more um, able to play this part, a more larger part, but right now, if I look at the world, it's, it seems that um, actually China is actually playing the role of the unorthodox kind of development um, um, nation. Uh, there's this, um, I think, concept called the Beijing Consensus right now. So. Um, in this in this line, how do you think Korea can actually? Is there a role that it can play? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. Well, first of all, on the first question on the world trading system. Now, when you uh, talk about uh, giving uh, uh, the more if you like, uh, the policy space uh, to developing countries, uh, the rich countries often deploy this uh, argument of level playing field. Yeah? They say, well, in a football game, if uh, the Argentinian team yeah, attacks from up the hill and the Brazilian team yeah, attacks from down the hill, it's unfair. Yeah? So why should uh, developing countries have yeah, uh, kind of a higher tariff when rich countries don't have uh, very much tariff? Huh? But uh, this uh, argument makes sense only when the players are equal. Huh? If in a football game, yeah, if uh, one team is uh, made of uh, the, the Brazilian national team, and if the other team is uh, made of uh, my 13-year-old daughter's uh, school friend, I think it's only fair that the girls attack from up the hill and Brazilians attack from down the hill. Now, of course, uh, in real life, uh, you don't get to see this kind of tilted playing field only because it is structurally banned uh, that, that Brazilian national team you know, officially competes a bunch of 13-year-old girls. Huh? Now, you might uh, say, oh, that's an extreme example, but just think about it. Huh? In all kinds of sports, there are structural barriers to kind of uh, that, that different uh, kinds of players uh, competing against each other. You know, in uh, things like boxing, wrestling, weightlifting, I mean, there are all these uh, weight classes. Huh? And do you know how the, the narrow these uh, weight uh, bands are? I mean, in the lighter weights, weight uh, classes of boxing, these weight bands are between two and three pounds. Huh? 
So in boxing, you think uh, it's uh, grossly so unfair that one guy who's two kilos heavier than the other guy boxes the lighter guy. You make it impossible for this uh, kind of contest to happen. And in international trade, you think it's uh, only fair that Honduras competes on, those equal, uh, on equal terms with the United States. Eh? So we have to, that, that, uh, first of all, destroy this that, 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 uh, concept. Now, self-interest, well, first of all, I'm partly appealing to enlightened self-interest. Yeah? Just imagine, I mean, in 1978, Mr. Deng Xiaoping accidentally picks up uh, a copy of Milton Friedman's uh, Free to Choose and implements uh, free market policy. I don't think uh, China would have uh, grown in the way that it has. Huh? As a result of uh, the, these you know, heterodox policies, the Chinese economy today is 10 times bigger than what it used to be. Okay, that, that, that even with Milton Friedman's policy, it might have grown a bit, but you know, we are basically that, that, talking about the huge uh, the opportunities for export and investment for the rich countries opening up. Yeah? With these uh, neoliberal policies of the uh, last 25 years, well, first of all, the world economy has a, as a whole has uh, grown more slowly than in the bad old days of 1960s and 70s. But the, the gross deceleration has been particularly pronounced uh, in the, the developing countries. So actually letting the developing countries use policies that are more suitable to their stages of development is good for the rich countries as well. And secondly, that, that, uh, I don't uh, believe in this view that uh, all humans are completely self-interested. Yeah? If that's the case, how do you explain that Norway gives more than 1% of its GDP as uh, foreign aid and the United States uh, gives only 0.3%? Yeah? You know, I mean, human motivations are very complex. Yeah? So that we, we should that, uh, also appeal to sort of better uh, the side of human nature too. But I mean, my primary argument is enlightened self-interest. Yeah? actually by helping the developing countries grow, by allowing them to use policies that are more suitable to their stages of development, the rich countries are in the long run going to benefit. Yeah, when I, on the issue of intellectual property rights, you know, that when, whenever I say something critical about uh, intellectual property rights, at least uh, as they exist uh, today, I invariably have, uh, well, not you, but I mean, that, uh, so far, I uh, invariably have uh, someone in the audience uh, raising his or her hand and saying, well, uh, seeing that you are against intellectual property rights, uh, Professor, uh, would you endorse uh, uh, someone kind of publishing your article under his name? Well, I didn't quite argue that. The point about uh, this intellectual property rights is, yes, I mean, the patterns and so on are useful. Yeah? All I'm arguing is that we, you, we need to get the balance right. Yeah? You know, for example, the, when the, all these patterns came into being in the beginning, in most countries, they were 14 years. Yeah? Why? Because uh, the, the apprenticeship, which was uh, the main way to transfer technology up till that point, usually ran for seven years. Huh? So they 
many countries doubled that and introduced patents for 14 years. It has become longer and longer and longer. And now in the United States, basically pharmaceutical companies can get the patents, well, de facto for 28 years. Is there any economic theory which says that 28 years is better than 14 or 20? No, I don't. And also, it depends on what kind of products you are talking about. You know, even though I have uh, that, that uh, peculiar view on the, the, the counterfeiting brand issues, I think uh, it's uh, no big deal if uh, that, uh, they would uh, ban counterfeiting Gucci bags. Yeah? But uh, when it uh, that comes to demanding that developing countries pay huge amount of money to produce life-saving drugs, that's another matter. Huh? You know, I mean, the, all this uh, controversy that surrounds uh, HIV-AIDS drugs, you know, if you want to keep an HIV-positive uh, patient alive for a year with patented drugs, it typically costs ten to $12,000. Yeah? It takes uh, only three to $500 if you import counterfeit yeah, drugs uh, from India or Brazil. Yeah? And you tell African countries to pay yeah, 30 times your national per capita income to keep one person alive. No, they cannot afford it. Whereas if you can keep it down to 300, it becomes a yeah, plausible proposition. Yeah? So you have to balance these things. I'm not saying that, that the patterns should be abolished. Yeah? I mean, there are certain social values. You know, actually, as a protectionist, I have all the right uh, to defend uh, patterns. Yeah? Free trade economies actually don't have the right to defend patterns because it's inconsistent. Now, what you said about counterfeiting, yeah, I mean, there are two different issues. I mean, one is product quality or accurate product description or whatever, I mean, the product standard. So if it says milk, it should have only milk. I mean, it shouldn't have any other thing, which is very different from these brand issues. You know. Gucci, Louis Vuitton, I mean, these are different class of problems, and I think we need a different approach to different things. Politics and development, well, I don't know. I mean, historically speaking, no country really developed under democracy. I mean, that's a fact. Which is not to say that, 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 that you shouldn't have democracy, because democracy has, uh, is uh, intrinsic value. But uh, basically, that my reading of the empirical evidence is that there is no clear correlation between political system and economic growth. Huh? I mean, I'm a Democrat, and I would advocate democracy for its own sake, but. You know, I don't understand why people always have to justify something in terms of its effect on economic growth. Yeah? I'm an economist, but I think uh, that's uh, ridiculous. Yeah? There are some things that you should have uh, even when you know that uh, it's not very good for yeah, economic growth. Yeah? But e even when you focus on this uh, economic growth uh, the, the aspect, I, mean, I don't see any evidence that uh, it uh, runs either way. Now, China, of course, uh, that. Uh, can and does uh, play a bigger role uh, in the international system than Korea does. But 
I think uh, it, it actually could uh, play an even bigger role. I mean, I don't think uh, it's uh, playing the role that's uh, commensurate uh, to its uh, weight. You know? and, uh, if you go to the WTO, the, the, the South Africa, Brazil, and India play a more prominent role when China actually has a more economic clout. You know? So, I mean, of course, that, that uh, when I talk about Korea, you know, I mean, whatever it does, it will never play a leading role, you know, given its size, given its position. But I think uh, it uh, can play a very important uh, catalytic uh, role. And, and my uh, regret is that it's not really playing that role. Okay. Uh, Let's, uh, yep. Another round, I suppose. Okay. Hi, I'm from the Battle of Ideas conference, which you're speaking at later oh, right, at the okay. end of this month. Um, you, I'm just curious to whether you think that the enlightened self-interest policy um, is a necessary one, because obviously, up until now, um, it hasn't been for the countries that have actually adopted it, because despite the strictures of Western countries, the, by more developed countries against protectionism, those that are trying to develop have used protectionist measures anyway. So I'm just curious to why you think it's necessary as a, a, a policy issue. Because for me, it, it, it does seem that the problem of protectionism alone is not a s sufficient grounds for mm -hmm. economic growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what above that, in terms of protecting nascent industries, would you suggest is necessary for developing economies to grow as quickly as possible? Yeah. Hi, my name is Matthew Bates. I'm a Korean Studies um, graduate. Um, I wondered how you would factor the role of the Cold War and of the, the U.S.'s assistance to Korea during the Cold War mm -hmm. in terms of your, your, you know, your ar argument. Um, yeah, yeah. Because in, in a sense, perhaps, the U.S. may have, you may argue, has facilitated um, the kind of growth that Korea experienced um, during that period. I, I mm -hmm. wonder what your comments would be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor, if we accept that the many heterodox um, uh, actions that you've enumerated here actually had a positive contribution to the development of Korea. Mm -hmm. What seems remarkable to me about Korea's experience was that it was able to drop these practices at an appropriate time before they began to hurt the economy more than they helped it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for mm -hmm. every Korea or Taiwan that we see that was able to intervene and then withdraw uh, from these practices, we see five or six countries elsewhere in the world that they introduced these practices and kept them in place to the point that they were more detrimental to the economy than they were helpful. Mm -hmm. What in the Korean experience would you offer that helps countries to know when to move on? Or was it something external to Korea that pushed Korea? to move on, and what would that be, and what should be put in right, place right, to make sure it happens? Yeah. Maybe one more? One more. 
Hi, uh, my name is Jisubang. I'm doing a master's course at Economic History Department as well. And uh, I'd like to ask about your analysis about Korean economy, the present and future time, because you have repeatedly argued that uh, we need to, Korean government need to continue to take advantage of the unique, unique system of table, mm -hmm. which allowed them to invest in massive scale to actually uh, contribute to the high growth rate in mid-1980s. And, uh, but, and I act actually it's true that because Korean economy after the financial crisis so far, we actually have confronted a little bit low rate of investment rate, especially uh, in domestic term. Mm -hmm. So your argument sounds quite convincing. But what I want to know is that actually, I just, my fundamental question is that what do you see? The stage of development in the contemporary Korea is now because I think the reason why our economy has grown so fast in the past was that it was possible to take advantage of the scale, economy of scale. We invested highly in capital intensive uh, industries and heavy industries and whatever. So actually we achieved a lot. But the important assumption behind it was that technology level in capital industry, uh, capital intensive industry was not as uh, highly advanced as now Korean industries are. So I have seen a survey about the role rate of investment rate of Korean firms these days. And actually the most frequent uh, answer of actually corporates about their low performance investment was not, not regulations or whatever. Uh, of course they pointed that, but it was only minor parts. Actually the major reason is that now actually they have achieved quite world frontier technology level. So now what they have to do is to find a new source of growth, which is very difficult. So it's not a matter of quantity, how much money you can get to invest. Or I think so it's more like a matter of quality. You have to find out what, what kind of business can um, yeah. make money for them in the future. So it's, mm -hmm. I think, I, yeah, just, I just, yeah. my question is, yeah. Okay, Thank you. right. Um, yeah, on the first question, I mean, uh, it depends on which country you are talking about. Because uh, if you are Brazil, if you are India, if you are China, yes, uh, you ha can do and have done things that you think is uh, necessary. Yeah? Uh, if you are some uh, small, financially kind of, uh, constrained country in Africa or Latin America, then uh, you have to listen to the World Bank and the IMF. I mean, you, yeah have enormous uh, ideological influence uh, from the yeah, free market orthodoxy. You have uh, the constant pressure in the WTO to lower your uh, the tariffs. I mean, you have all this uh, regional trade agreement where rich countries, regional or bilateral, rich, rich countries basically twist your arms and make you the drop uh, protection and so on. So actually, it uh, depends on the country. I mean, uh, in a way, yeah, those who can yeah, do whatever is necessary despite this pressure will do better than those who can't. Yeah? Now, of course, that, that, that discussion and question from over there, you know, protectionism is only the basic condition. Yeah? You know, that when I that explain the need for protectionism, I use this uh, that, that analogy that, you know, I, in this book I have a 
chapter titled My Six-Year-Old uh, Son Should Get a Job. Now, well, I, my son was uh, six when I wrote the book, but uh, you know, children have this annoying habit of growing up, so he's uh, already eight. But uh, you know, for my literary integrity, he'll have to remain uh, six forever, and I'm sure he will hate for it, uh, hate me for it, uh, in the same way that uh, A.A. Millen's uh, son, who was written up as uh, Christopher Robin in Winnie the Pooh, hated his father for the rest of his life. But you know. The way I put it is, look, I mean, that, that this guy is basically a parasite, yeah? You know, I mean, I pay for his uh, the directly and indirectly, lodging, food, education, yeah? healthcare, and do you know how expensive these uh, Nintendo games are? <laughs> so I got thinking, well, you know, I mean, that there are millions of children that in Pakistan, in Africa, in Guatemala, who work from the age of four or five, yeah? Why can't he go and make money, yeah? You know, this will be a win-win solution because uh, not only will I save money, but he will also become a better person, yeah? Exposed to competition from a very early age, he'll have to remain efficient, he'll have to uh, know how to survive, yeah? So why don't I do it? Well, you know, my explanation is, well, the, I, I, the, know for sure that, uh, that if I drive him into the labor market, what will he become? I mean, he'll, he'll probably start as a shoeshine boy, and if he's lucky, he might end up owning a kind of food stall on the street, and maybe if he's really successful, a small shop, but he'll never become more than that. Huh? On the other hand, if I send him to school and support him for another 12, 15 years, you know, he's a, a, quite a clever kid. I mean, he could become lots of things, yeah? Nuclear physicist, brain surgeon, chartered accountant, yeah? Of course, that, uh, sending him to school and supporting him is not a guarantee for his success, yeah? I mean, he could turn out to be a total waste of time, yeah? As uh, some people do, yeah? <laughs> but I'm willing to take the risk because uh, the other option is 100% certain poverty, yeah? So this is uh, why I uh, advocate protectionism, and of course, uh, as uh, the gentleman upstairs said, for every Korea, well, I don't think uh, that uh, it, I would say as many as uh, five uh, that, that, uh, kind of failures, but yes, I mean, uh, there are countries that have failed to wean their uh, industries uh, from protection and subsidies in the same way that some parents support their children until they are 35, 45, yeah? And some children quite willingly manipulate their parents uh, to get subsidized until they are 45, 55. Yeah? <laughs> so these things happen. Yeah? But that is not an argument to drive a six-year-old boy into the labor market. Yeah? You know, I mean, that, uh, when I renounce my protectionist uh, belief and that uh, convert to free trade, maybe you will see a headline in the newspaper saying, Protectionist economist uh, repents, send his uh, son uh, to work uh, at the age of nine or something. Yeah? I don't think it'll happen. Huh? Now, what was uh, special about Korea? I mean, that, well, I, I think uh, that uh, one thing was that, that uh, basically they were not content with sort of reproducing sort of the consumption patterns of uh, rich countries 
beyond the protectionist wall, which is what happened in countries like uh, Brazil and South Africa. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, these countries did uh, 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 do well in many respects. I mean, you know, for example, Brazil between 1965 and 80 was the fastest growing economy in the world. Huh? So uh, when I say these things, I'm not suggesting that these were total disasters, but, you know, the difference between, say, Japanese or Korean attitude and, and the, say, Latin American or South African attitude was, you know, the Japanese and the Koreans said, well, you know, we are still backward. We can only produce uh, shit cars, and therefore we'll drive around in shit cars, but we will make it sure that uh, our car industry develops so that one day we compete with BMW and Benz, yeah? which is what the Japanese are already doing now and Koreans might be doing if they uh, work hard enough in the near future. Yeah? The Brazilian or South African attitude was we can only produce shit cars, but we don't want shit cars. Yeah? So let's uh, invite that, uh, Volkswagen, let's invite BMW and build those cars here. Of course, uh, the, the cost will uh, be... Uh, the, I mean, overly high for various reasons, and therefore, in order to make these companies uh, profitable, we give them protection. So there was a whole different way of uh, looking at protection because uh, the East Asian protection worked partly because it was aimed at eventually competing in the world market. Yeah? But that is very different from saying that from day one you uh, try to compete with the big guys. Yeah? You, you have to uh, build your productive uh, capabilities and that is the second important part of the story. I mean, the, the government and, and business work together to invest in building productive capabilities. Yeah? So the investment in the research and development, investment in education, worker training, infrastructure, and in, in doing this, if uh, the, the you have to go against uh, free market orthodoxy, so be it. Yeah? So that, that when I advocate that uh, protectionist uh, measure, I see it as the starting point. Yeah? It's uh, if you like a precondition. Yeah? Unless uh, your child goes to school, he will never become a brain surgeon. Yeah? Now, going to school is not a guarantee to become a brain surgeon. Actually, not everyone will become a brain surgeon. So when you use our protectionist policies, some countries will succeed more than others. That's the nature of the things. But we shouldn't use the cases of, I don't know, Zambias of this world to say that you should not use protectionist measures. It's uh, like uh, the pointing out that uh, some I mean, the high school dropout or some guy who's uh, living off his uh, parents until he's 45 and say that, well, we should abolish school. Yeah? Because uh, sending people to, to school and making them dependent on their parents is bad for them. Yeah? Well, bad for some people, but uh, on average, I think uh, it's uh, better to send kids to school. Yeah? Now, on the issue of uh, Korean chapels or conglomerates, ooh, it's a long story, and I, I don't uh, the, think we can go into that. But yeah, basically, the reason why I the, the think these conglomerates were important or at least useful in Korean development is 
This is uh, the, a mechanism through which uh, firms can diversify and upgrade. Huh? You know, Samsung used to refine sugar and export vegetables huh? and then make textile. Huh? It's only because uh, they had those businesses they could uh, invest in semiconductors and mobile phones. Huh? And it wasn't just Korea. Nokia, the Finnish you know, phone company, you know, it uh, started out as a logging company. Huh? Because uh, Finland at the time was, uh, the, it uh, started in the late 19th century, and at the time Finland was literally the poorest European economy. Yeah? And all they had was trees. Yeah? So what do you do? You cut trees. Yeah? And then it uh, started diversifying into other businesses like making rubber boots uh, for the lumberjacks uh, that they hired. Yeah? And using that uh, rubber technology, they started coating electric cables. Yeah? They picked up some electric uh, techniques there and uh, moved into making telephone exchanges and so on and so on. But when it uh, decided to set up the electronics business back in 1960, you know, people laughed at it. You know? It took them 17 years before that electronics uh, the subsidiary made any profit. You know? And I still remember until the late 1980s, a lot of people thought the name Nokia was a deliberate attempt by this uh, pathetic Finnish company to make it sound Japanese, yeah? because that, 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 that they were in electronics and the uh, uh, Japanese yeah, were good at electronics. Well, actually, Nokia is the name of the town where the company first started. Yeah? So, I mean, a lot of uh, countries, actually more countries than not, uh, diversified and upgraded uh, through these mechanisms, and uh, especially after the Asian financial crisis, Koreans have been drilled uh, that, uh, with this uh, propaganda that you know, no kind of uh, normal country has this kind of company. Actually, this is usually how businesses are run in Sweden, in Germany, even in America. Anyway, so I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, that, that we could talk about that, that, that uh, on another occasion uh, if you want, but uh, just to point out that, uh, oh, yeah, that, but I, I should address uh, one more of your points. Has Korea reached the technological frontier and has exhausted the uh, so-called catch-up benefits? Yeah, another chance, yeah? You know, the Korea... No, in some, yeah, in some subsectors of in electronics and so on. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, there are still huge uh, catch-up benefits in other industries, yeah? machines and, you know, on average, Korean manufacturing productivity is around 40% at uh, the, the US and Europe, yeah? I mean, we are not even near the, the, the technological frontier. I mean, the Japanese may be able to say that, yeah? But not Korea, come on, yeah? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later, yeah? Mm. Maybe just uh, another round of... Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, over there. Hi, Bashak from um, Cambridge. How do you compare the, the current um, financial crisis with the Asian uh, crisis that Korea suffered uh, quite uh -huh. heavily. Do you see any similarities, differences? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. 
Um, I had a comment and a question. The, the comment was that I think I might have misunderstood, but it seems that there's much more sensitivity, especially from Western countries, about the idea of colonialism and moving back towards it. And I think that while it's a very attractive metaphor to say, we'll be the parent and we will give them uh, you know, resources that will help them through this time, I think it's very much... Oh, no, no. Parents are the national governments, uh, not uh, the rich countries. No. Because yeah. <laughs> I think that's a, a very sensitive issue, especially because if we're saying protectionism will work in these ways mm -hmm. and you should implement it, and the WTO then would say, here's how you should implement protectionism, we'll, we will give you aid in response. Yeah, no, no. How they should do it is uh, to give uh, countries uh, freedom of choice. Yeah? You know, the curious thing is that uh, these people who believe in free trade and so on uh, are all in favor of free choice when it comes to uh, their domestic policy. But when it comes to developing countries, they say, well, we know what is good for you. Yeah? Free trade is good for you. Even if you don't like it, you have to do it. Yeah? I mean, balanced budget is good for you. Even if you don't like it, you have to do it. Yeah? Well, give them choice. Yeah? I mean, you, uh, you are supposed to be in favor of choice yeah, if you're a pro-market economist. But why would you not give choice uh, to developing countries? Eh? Anyway. And the, mm -hmm. the primary question, though, was um, if we have, if you're, if you're promoting things like nationalized markets, isn't it necessary that, that countries then choose which industries to enter? So play, Nokia, obviously, a great choice to go into semiconductors. But there were 17 years where it looked like a terrible choice. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So is, isn't there an implicit problem with saying, and I think this was raised earlier, too, with how you make that decision, and aren't you really saying let them make choices, which has the implicit let a lot of failure happen? Mm -hmm. And how you answer that is a question. Yeah. Right. Okay. Over there. Let me stand up because I can't see it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Jin Yu. I'm first year uh, in the master degree of international political economy. Um, I know that Professor Chen, you have long been an advocate for the role of states. Uh, in the development, and in your previous publications and books, um, uh, you um, you demonstrated the Japan and Koreans' uh, model of development. Essentially, the states uh, um, states intervention pushing industrialization, um, and we see that uh, these uh, countries in East Asia has achieved. Uh, tremendous uh, 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 growth in the 1970s, 80s, and uh, still uh, in the current situation that in China, um, uh, Korea, Could Singapore, perhaps, brief. yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, state still owns a lot of uh, land and, and bank uh, shares of bank and controls the stock market. In the case of China, and um, my question is, uh, is it uh, and and also sorry in in the current. Um, a financial crisis uh -huh. and the Brits and the Americans are, are desperate to shore up the banking system and nationalize all the banks. Uh, do you think it's, it's time for uh, the East Asians to demonstrate their, um, their models of uh, development and uh, their ideology to the West? Mm -hmm. Okay, I think and let, say that the Anglo-Saxon um, system is outdated. Thank you very yeah. much. And right. um, Okay. Over there, because uh, uh, I'm a third-year undergrad student from Seoul National University, and I'm studying here for a year. Uh, my question is, 
recently Paul Krugman got the Nobel Prize for economics, and I note that he wrote a paper about how arguing like careers development is contributed to putting more in more labor and not like in the quality-wise improvement. And also, I just wanted to know what you thought about that. And another small question is, uh, despite the roles that Korea should play in the in uh, exp exp in its experience and letting the other countries know, do you think that Korea is ready for opening for for itself, like to signing up FTA agreements with big economies like the States and the mm -hmm. European Union? Thank yeah. you. Uh, okay, over there, yes, shaking. Yeah, one last one, and I, I think I'll have to, yeah. Hi, um, I'm a first year. No, I think that. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm waving my hands. Hello, my name's Nan. I'm from Kumara College. I'm doing in Chinese uh, IP enforcement. Uh, thank you very much for your very interesting lecture. I'm a Chinese myself. Uh, you mentioned Samsung. I know Samsung was a small fruit trader in the 1930s, but nowadays it's built a large, large uh, software development center in Tsinghua University in China. And now, nowadays, uh, higher and uh, Changhong, the household Chinese uh, companies, their products are using Korea Samsung chips. So this is the result of free trade. Thank you very much for these. And next, I want to point out one part regarding your attitude toward Deng Xiaoping's theory, because I'm a Chinese myself. Without Deng Xiaoping's open door policy since 1978, we don't have, we Chinese people do not have a policy, uh, have an attitude to, to, how can I say, to contact the outside world at all. So maybe you can think about this issue, Deng Xiaoping's theory, from mm -hmm. a Chinese native's um, point of view. Actually, in China, in mainland China, Deng Xiaoping was uh, generally very, very respected by the commons, by mm -hmm. the common people, because he really increased the, the common interest of the, the, the public. That's why we respect him as a, um, not only as a public figure, figure mm -hmm. as a human being, because he put our uh, could interest you in keep yourself brief, because otherwise <laughs> yeah. we're just getting into an entirely different subject. I, I want to give other people a chance to ask All right, okay. So maybe you can think about uh, this issue from a uh, native, Chinese native's point of view. Thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. I think last question over there. Hi, I'm a th first year undergraduate in international relations and history at LSE. Um, I was just wondering how snugly you think Korea fits into Wu Cummings' definition of a developmental state? Um, all right. Um, and do you have a brief question to ask? That <laughs> it have to be the last. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, just wait a minute until the... Hi, um, I'm working for socially responsive investment funds in one of the asset managers. Um, and looking at some of the companies in Korea and um, some of the Korean Chebel or other small and medium enterprises, um, what I see from Korean companies, the general tendency is um, that you um, still don't have um, above average, or so, so we, we call that kind of high standards for the labor um, yeah. or working conditions of those companies. 
and and also in in terms of corporate governance, I see very weak um, performance from Korean companies. Um, so even even though Korea Korean economy developed quite quickly, but in terms of those conditions for um, for the employees and sort of the social standards. Um, I just wanted to ask your view whether Korean kept up with the global standards for this as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I'll yep. end. Oh, the, actually I need to the, apologize uh, to the gentleman over there the, for forgetting to answer his question on the role of the Cold War. I mean, I uh, hope uh, he's still there. Um, <laughs> no, I. I try to combine different questions and I completely forgot about it. Well, yes, I mean, the Cold War and U.S. support did uh, have certain benefits. I mean, for example, in the 1950s, uh, the, something like 80% of Korean import bill was uh, paid for by American aid. Uh, although, I mean, other elements are the, the less uh, the, the difficult to prove. I mean, the people keep talking about the special access that Korea had uh, to the U.S. market, but I have never seen any concrete evidence on this. And I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it still remains an urban legend like the Made in USA story. But don't forget that uh, there are also costs to pay. Yeah? I mean, Korea and Taiwan spend five to six, typically six percent of their GDP on defense when developing country average was uh, between two and three percent. Yeah. So you had that, that the extra 3% that, that burden uh, on the, you and then uh, in the case of Korea, it suffered from the Korean War, which uh, destroyed half its manufacturing facilities and 75% uh, of the railways. Huh? So I don't know. I mean, someone can tot up uh, the cost and benefits until someone actually does that. I re reserve my judgment. Now, the difference between the Asian crisis of the 1990s and current crisis in the rich countries. Uh, you know, George Bush, uh, in his uh, typical idiot savant kind of way, perfectly summed up uh, the American approach uh, when announcing that uh, $700 billion bailout uh, on the 19th of September, he said something like uh, free enterprise I mean, he said that this is a continuation of American free enterprise policy, and he said free enterprise consists of government uh, intervening only when it is uh, necessary. Okay, I mean, the, the difference is that uh, what is necessary is defined by the powerful. Huh? I mean, that, uh, have you ever heard of anyone worrying about American budget deficit? I mean, when these uh, bailout packages are going to add straight uh, to their budget deficit uh, to the tune of 5% uh, of American GDP? No, we don't hear this, because uh, for the Americans, it's something necessary, so we do it. Yeah? When Korea that, that, uh, was uh, under IMF uh, that, uh, tutelage uh, back, in the uh, nine, uh, back in 1997 and 8, IMF insisted that Korea runs budget surplus despite the fact that the country at the time had the second lowest public sector debt as a proportion of GDP in the whole of OECD. 
And only when the economy took a nosedive for the next six months and 100 firms went bankrupt on average per day, the IMF uh, relented and said, okay, you can run a small deficit of equivalent to 0.8% of GDP. So there is a huge amount of uh, double standard that, that, uh, going on here. Let's not start on it, because uh, we could be sitting here all night. <laughs> now, on the protectionist policies, yeah, basically the, some will succeed and some will fail. You know, my position is uh, I still advocate this policy because my reading of uh, historical evidence is that on average, yeah, I think uh, it uh, brings more benefit than the, the, the cost. Yeah? Yes, but I mean, in the, there will be individual cases where protectionist ideas are totally abused and nothing happens to the economy in the same way that some yeah, people live off their parents until they are 35, yeah? 65. Yeah? So the, the, I'll leave it at that. Krugman, yeah, I mean, I like Krugman in certain ways, but uh, you have to understand Krugman the, the, in the following way. He will say whatever is the most controversial at the moment. Yeah? <laughs> so when he the, 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 the wrote that article about East Asia miracle, he was basically uh, trying to be contrarian. And I mean, I don't have time to go into the detail, but you know, for example, he cites uh, certain studies which show that East Asian countries had uh, low total factor productivity growth. Of course, I mean that, that uh, I'm, I'm quite skeptical about the very notion of growth accounting and, and uh, total factor productivity. But even if you accepted that, he cites a couple of studies which are actually outliers. Yeah? I mean, uh, for those uh, two, three studies, uh, you have 30 other studies which show that uh, total factor productivity growth in uh, East Asia was actually quite fast. Yeah? And then when you look at the uh, studies that he cites, uh, like uh, Elwin Young's uh, study, you find that countries like Egypt and Congo have uh, the higher factor productivity growth rate than South Korea or Singapore. Yeah? Does it make them a better economy, more creative economy? I don't think so. Yeah? Because uh, the very notion of uh, this uh, total factor productivity is uh, very problematic. Yeah? So, I mean, uh, and, and then he kind of yeah, pushes even further to say that these uh, economies are like uh, the Soviet yeah, centrally planned collectivist economy. I mean, not a chance. Yeah? So that, uh, I, I that, uh, think uh, it was uh, one of the bad things uh, that he has done which is uh, different from saying that he doesn't yeah, deserve the prize. I mean, much worse people have uh, received the prize. So. <laughs> now, can Korea afford to have uh, free trade with the US and the EU? No, I don't think so. Yeah? My view is that uh, when you have similar levels of development, free trade is actually better. Yeah? But uh, when uh, you have free trade uh, the, between countries at different levels of development, basically, in the short run, you both benefit, but in the long run, the lower level country suffers because it cannot upgrade. Yeah? And as I said earlier, I mean, the Korean productivity and income level is basically 40% that of the US and the richer countries in the European Union. I don't think we are ready. Yeah, yeah maybe when the, our income and productivity level becomes 70%, 80%, Maybe it that, uh, will that, 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 uh, bring some benefit, uh, sorry, more benefit than cost, but not now, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, you know, Chinese companies are moving up. You know, 
I mean, I, I still remember when the Toyota first and, and Nissan first announced uh, in the early 80s that they were going to produce luxury cars like, I mean, that can compete with the BMW and uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz. A lot of people said, haha, that's an oxymoron, Japanese luxury car. Yeah? Well, now, the, the, at least in North America, the, the, the Lexus uh, the sells more cars than the BMW or Benz. Huh? So yes, I mean, you, you wait. I mean, of course, uh, the Chinese uh, companies will have to work hard uh, to catch up. Huh? But uh, don't write people off uh, simply because they, I mean, uh, had not been very good. Don't assume that the uh, that, uh, corporate dominance will last forever. I mean, there was a time when uh, many people said what is good for General Motors is good for the United States. Huh? I mean, General Motors uh, now is about to go down the drain. Yeah? A company that used to produce uh, something like 30% of world car output is about to disappear. Yeah? So these things uh, never last forever. Yeah? I mean, the competitors come, some companies uh, survive, some companies decline. Uh, developmental state, I don't know, I mean, I, I have uh, contributed uh, to that literature. I mean, uh, uh, I think uh, Korea yeah, could be said to be one of those, but, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not, on the other hand, someone who would argue that this concept has a, a lot of analytical purchase, so, I mean, uh, the, I, I remain a bit kind of ambivalent uh, on this notion. Now, social, uh, the, sorry, the, yeah, corporate social responsibility, well, I have to separate those two arguments, things like labor standards and corporate governance. I mean, on the corporate governance issue, I mean, this myth has been created that global standard, which means, yeah, uh, I mean, the global standard in corporate governance means basically a company being run like General Motors, yeah? all outside directors, yeah? and uh, the no kind of uh, dominant family, uh, no state uh, involvement. But actually the interesting thing is that General Motors is the only company of the top 10 international automobile companies that, is, uh, that has that kind of uh, corporate uh, governance structure. Yeah? You know, the companies like uh, the, the Pujo and BMW and uh, Korean Hyundai and so on are owned by yeah, basically that uh, one family. Yeah. I mean, Japanese uh, the companies like Toyota and Honda have not a single outside director. Yeah. Renault is 30% uh, owned by the French government, and Volkswagen is 20% owned by the state government of uh, Lower Saxony. Yeah. Ford, basically the, the, the uh, founding family, controls the so-called A shares, uh, whose uh, consent you need uh, when it comes to big things like uh, mergers and acquisitions. Yeah? So actually General Motors is the only company which is run like that and somehow it has uh, that, uh, been presented as uh, the global standard. And also that, 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 that see what that global standard in corporate governance got, uh, got itself to. Yeah? And I mean it's uh, like the worst uh, performing uh, automobile company in the world. Yeah? So the, but on the things like labor issues, yes, I think uh, the Korean companies really need to do more. Huh? 
And, and uh, I'm quite ashamed uh, of uh, the things that uh, many Korean companies, large companies, big companies, uh, as well as uh, small companies do, especially when they go abroad. And, you know, I mean, in Guatemala, I think, uh, or oh, was it Ecuador? I certainly forget. There was uh, almost a kind of general strike because of uh, the bad labor the management of uh, the Korean companies that invested uh, in that country. Yeah? So these uh, need to be the, the fixed. Huh? And, and uh, I'm all for putting pressure on the Korean companies on this front because, you know, in the end, no company, Korean, American, British, French, they don't give it for that, uh, unless they are pressed into it. Yeah? You know, it's that, 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 that sort of uh, well-known historical pattern, and, and uh, we need to uh, put pressure on companies to improve these things. Thank you. Well, thank you. And let me end with two words of thanks. And first of all, I'd like to extend warm thanks to the Korea Foundation, without whose generous support this event would not have been possible. And they're also financing the exchange program between LSE and Korea. So I think that's the start of a, I hope, a long intellectual journey, and we may be able to go into these questions in greater detail. Finally, I'd like to thank Professor Young for a very wide-ranging and stimulating talk. So let me again thank you very much.